Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. This week, I'm focusing on an aspect of our post-pandemic world that is increasingly being discussed among parents, but I haven't yet really heard discussed in the media, and it hits close to home for me. And that is what to do about the fact that most of us as caring parents tried to limit our kids' screen time before COVID and then utterly gave up on that once school, life, and pretty much everything else went virtual. Today's teenagers spend an estimated six and a half hours a day on their devices, and that, I think, is a number that is not counting the time they spend going to school on their devices. Here to help us think about how to approach this challenge, if it even is a challenge, is psychologist and New York Times bestselling author, Wendy Mogul. Wendy has written several famous books about parenting, including The Blessing of a Skinned Knee and Voice Lessons for Parents. She's the host of a podcast, Nurture versus Nurture, and she's here with me to talk about parenting in a distinctively challenging time. Wendy, it's such a huge pleasure to have you on the podcast. I've admired your work tremendously, and it's also affected my parenting. I wanted to ask you about a very concrete problem that I am confronting now, and I have the feeling I must be one of millions confronting it. Like a lot of parents, I tried very hard, fighting the trend, to be responsible about my kids and their use of tech, and particularly phones. And then came COVID. And experts, psychologists like you, other experts in childhood development, basically said, you know, parents, you can sort of give up on this now because your kids' lives are now completely online. They're stuck at home. First it was lockdown, then it was school remotely. They need to have social interaction. 
And so the way they're getting at right now is through their phones. So I gave up. Now, as we begin to emerge into the post-COVID world, knock on wood, it would be nice to try to return to something like a reasonable model with respect to tech. And yet I do not see the road back. <laughs> I don't see the road back because the depth of, um, let's call it, to use a polite term, connection to the devices is now so profound. And by the way, not only for the kids, I think this is true of a lot of adults as well. So I wanna start by asking you, did we get it wrong in the first place? And what can we do now? What I see in so many of the parents that I've been working with through this very, very unusual period of time is tremendous ambivalence and double standards. So we don't want the kids on their devices too much. And yet, for us, we can always say it's work. So for example, you and I are talking to each other right now, and we're on opposite sides of the country. We are looking at each other. We're making a podcast. It's so easy to justify on lots of levels as a worthy enterprise. Mm-hmm. And I mean, let's hope so. <laughs> yeah, right. We'll see. We'll see. We hope so. Exactly. What what I see parents doing a lot, two things I see are one is not modeling what they are hoping to see in their children. And the other is a kind of disgruntled ambivalence. So the parents say they're scornful and disparaging and sometimes naively mocking of the children's, and I have air quotes on for our listeners right now, addiction. And then they say, okay, go ahead. They kind of give up with some disdain. And so my model for parents in almost everything right now is to treat your child as your spirit guide. Your teenagers, 14 and 15 years old, they know fantastic things that go on on the web that you don't know anything about. That is for sure. So it it's a combination of incredibly alarming because technology is changing so rapidly and it feels hard for parents to keep up. And so then we take this position that is a cross between Luddite and addicted ourselves. And so the kids just write us off. And rightly, I would say. Yes. And so the first piece is to be enchanted with their enchantment. So have your children, and I know the answer to this already, but I want to hear it. Have they introduced you to things you would never have known about that you were delighted to learn? For sure. There's no question about it. And also no question in my mind that for all of its downsides, social media, broadly speaking, has a lot of upsides. It's created new forms of human connection and interaction. And those things are, are wonderful. Some of them are wonderful. I guess I think of it, though, a lot like other new technologies. They say the printing press in its day. 
you know, the printing press brought a lot of extraordinary possibility of the sharing and spread of information. And it also brought the wars of religion and profound polarization, violence, hate. And it took centuries to work out the relationship between those two things. And we're in the first, you know, Gutenberg is still alive and kicking. You know, we are in the very earliest stages of a transformational revolution in human consciousness, like the one associated with the printing press. So going back to Shabbat, the reason for that spiritual technology of Shabbat is to create a frame around time so that we have an opportunity to reflect and to do the things that the species needs so badly for its physical and spiritual health, which is to connect with other people, to be in community in our increasingly isolated, lonely, and... Alienated, maybe. Alienated. One part is to connect with other people. Another part is to be in nature. We need to experience awe, which is super easy for me to say and is a challenge because, what, as you well know, what the algorithms do is whatever you look at, it gets darker and weirder and more extreme to try to keep your eyeballs as long as possible for the purpose of the satisfying the advertisers. And our job as parents is one to model. So we moderate our use. The young people see us celebrating the tiny and delightful and grand and glorious things in our lives. And then we have a ritual formula, even for the day. This is one of the things that's happened in the pandemic. People talk about Blur's Day. They don't know what day of the week it is, that we don't have our old markers of time. And so the default way to soothe our emotions, to entertain us, and to have company is to pick up the device. Wendy, let me ask you a, a kind of philosophical question that kind of flows from what you're describing. And it, it, it's a reflection of my own on trying to find the right, as it were, Sabbath balance. And to me, all of the things that you described about a Sabbath day are wonderful, valuable, worth preserving and continuing. But at least in some strands of religious tradition, whether Jewish or otherwise, they come with a certain rigidity attached. So, you know, in order to do the delineation, there are rules. And the phone, in some sense, reintroduces something like that set of rules. And, of course, all pedagogy involves rules. Say more. Say, how does well, you know, phone... let's say one has a rule, a pretty straightforward rule, no phones at the table. Right, good. Okay, I mean, that's a good rule, Yeah. right? But it's supposed to be a bright line rule. It's not yeah. supposed to be a no phones at the table unless you're in a lousy mood or unless ah. you're expecting a call from your friends, or right? It's supposed to be a bright line rule. When you think about modeling for kids what the right thing to do is, but also having rules, because you're a big believer that 
both that we should be reasonable and that we should have reasonable rules. How do you think about the rules part in association with tech? That in our increasingly flexible yet rigid world, and this is one of the paradoxes of the way we're living now, for example, for a 14 and a 15-year-old, there are a whole set of expectations that have been applied to them since they were very small, but they're growing. As they move towards what we see as a scarcity zero-sum future, where if they don't reach certain benchmarks of achievement, they're doomed. And part of that is adults' own existential anxiety about their future and the future of the planet. Lots of parents are older than their parents were when they had children, so we feel our own mortality a tiny little bit. And the children then become the um, the reassurance or the validation we have that we're doing a good job. And we look at them too closely, but also not enough. So religion, organized religion, is really, really effective for some families and works very well. In other families, all the openness and diversity and flexibility and discovery of new ways of living do not fit the template that has existed in the past. But I guess what I'm really focusing on is identifying and effectuating the appropriate part of that. And I think that they are facing the same exact challenge that I'm facing with respect to the power of the technology that is not only a phone, but is also a wallet and is also a music maker and also also a mode of communication and also is the thermometer to tell you the temperature, you know, and also the alarm clock and, you know, you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I am trying to come up with um, a way to nudge them, let's say, towards the kind of use that I would think of as responsible that I am also trying to model, right? Even there, I think there is a disparity between their use and mine. And I think it's just largely generational. You know, I think they've just grown up with it to an even greater degree. But I do think it's about a moment where I say to them, hey, kids, you know, we don't use phones at the table. And you can see in them the physiological resistance to that preposterous idea. They're willing to obey, but, but I can see in them that it is, um, let's call it, obedience by force and not obedience of thinking the way we aspire for our children to think, that's a pretty reasonable rule. I realize I don't always follow it, but that rule is pretty reasonable. Here's a little bit of the heartbreak. And when I was thinking about talking to you on this podcast, I thought about the kids as, instead of having them as our avatar, we have them as our portal because most of these kids are inside kids now. And when 
even when you were growing up, I imagine that you could play outside when you were a little boy without your parents knowing where you were. Could you do that? Absolutely. And it is, as it's not so much that my kids wouldn't be allowed, it's that they don't have the same instinct to go out and play in the street. Because there's nobody else in the street. No, uh, agreed, agreed. That's part yeah. of the reason. What is the street? So they need, there's a wonderful word in Tom Sawyer when when Twain talks about Tom at the well and he, Tom says the kids were skylarking, just hanging out at the well, teasing each other, all different ages, different races he talks about. And when do these kids get to skylark except online, which is part of the paradox? In some ways, they are very sophisticated but emotionally young. Mm-hmm. And they don't have a lot of street smarts or street confidence. Mm -hmm. So, yes, for sure, it is a much more enjoyable dinner if nobody is looking at or responding to their phone. But what I want as much as that rule is for the families to get outside Mm-hmm. And to have the opportunity to have their mirror neurons vibrate with, I love this term, consequential strangers. My biggest concern about this generation is not whether they're going to master coding or Mandarin. Those two things they probably won't need shortly, but to be able to talk to people they don't already know, to have conversations with adults to enjoy the company and fellowship and sisterhood of new people because their parents are distracted, the kids are distracted, and the allure. There's a wonderful new book. I believe the author is Michael Moss, and it's called Hooked. It's about the addictiveness of fast food, and it's about so much how our brains operate and what appeals to what produces dopamine and how it works. Mm -hmm. So we have these dopamine generators available at all times that are vital for schoolwork, for communication, even for little kids communicating with their grandma and grandpa. And at the same time, we are missing out on so much. I I have to say, I'm less worried than your description is about the kids' ability to, to meet people, because I actually think, partly because of social media, they have a much broader acquaintanceship than I did at their age. I mean, my friends were limited, really, to the kids I could see in person, either in school or in the neighborhood. And they have friends who don't live in the neighborhood and they don't go to school with. Um, and those online friendships can also blossom into, you know, real, real friendships and real, you know, IRL friendships and, uh, you know, and relationships. So I, I'm actually not so worried about, about that aspect of it. I I do agree there's been a fundamental social change with respect to the street and how the street functioned, um, you know, in my childhood. And I live only a mile from where I grew up, but I can see a total transformation in how the streets are, were a place of running around in packs and just are not anymore. Um, There's wonderful work by Ellen Sandsetter, who is, uh, who studies phobias in children. She, she wrote an article called The Antiphobic Effects of Thrilling Experience. 
And she says that unless kids are exposed to danger, they will be more fearful. And she names the kinds of danger. She says they have to be... Take a zip line. Yes, that sort of thing. Much worse than a zip line. So Mm. um, great heights where they could fall, Mm -hmm. near fire, dangerous tools, Mm -hmm. uh, aggression, social and physical aggression, Hmm. traveling at great speed, and wayfinding. Mm -hmm. One of the problems with technology is that's the main source of danger for our children, they don't get to learn how to titrate danger before they go off to college on their own that is not screen-based danger. Mm-hmm. So I and some And wayfinding wayfinding can seem obsolete in an era of Google Maps. No, that's really true. Really true. And so these experiences need to be constructed, and it requires a lot of creativity on parents' part. So what they do instead is say, okay, two hours of screen time after all your homework is done. Mm-hmm. And we are then a cross between security guards, concierge services, and keeping track from moment to moment of what the children are doing when we really want them to be able to monitor and make good judgments about that. Yeah, I mean, what I hear you saying is that that kind of a rule is simply too rigid. And that that this goes back to our conversation about rigidity, that it puts the parent in the position of enforcing a rigid rule It puts the kid in the position not of being autonomous and making judgments and learning to make mistakes and fix them, but simply in the position of following yet another rule in a world that's already far too full of rules and restrictions. Rules, restrictions, grades, and ranking. Yeah. So what I, I mean, tell me if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly. I mean, what I hear you saying is some version of Noah, just relax. You know, I mean, this is fine. Our society as a whole may have gone down a rabbit hole of technological addiction, but and, and kids live in the society too, but we'll self-correct at some point as a society, and they'll self-correct when everybody else self-corrects. And the kind of picture of erosion that films like The Social Dilemma do suggest is, is grossly exaggerated with respect to the great majority of people who can come to terms with new technologies. And if that's the message, I'm jumping up and down with joy because it you know, it's, it's sort of, um, it suggests that we don't have to be in a panic, even in a situation like the post-pandemic world, where we've just, as a society, locked everything down, imposed rules, imposed rigidity, been very fear-based, possibly rationally fear-based, but nevertheless fear-based. Now we're going to crawl out from under it. We have had to do this for over a year in order to save our lives. The decision fatigue we have about tiny, nuanced angles of things. And originally, we thought the virus could travel on surfaces, and then we discovered it was aerosol. And now we're supposed to be allowed to take off our masks. But should we? Being paranoid or getting it right or wrong, which is what we feel so often as parents, we want to do it right. And then People like me write parenting books that tell you how to do it, and we act like experts, and then you read them and think, oh, should I do what she said, not what she said? 
And there's so much thinking going on that what gets lost are the full range of feelings and the other piece is laughter. And the part of what happens online is just a glory uh, in snark and in dismissing other people and of feeling superior. But there is also wit and whimsy and good silliness to be found online and to be found in real life. So if you want to worry about your family, one thing you can say is not two hours of tech, no more than that, and get outside and get some fresh air. And why are you eating that? And why aren't you exercising? We're so close to the kids that anything you're close to, you see all the flaws. And it's hard to step back and to zoom out and have the wide view. So if you want to worry about things, it may be that you're not laughing enough with your children and laughing about them in private with your partner. We'll be back in a moment. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, 
I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. It may be too soon still to have this conversation fully, but let me just ask you in a preliminary way. Do you think that we went too far at a, of, in a, the pathologizing direction in the course of the last year and change um, in trying to, as you said, keep ourselves alive? I mean, we were getting guidance. That guidance was shifting over time. But there was inevitably a pathologizing component there. I mean, after all, we were surrounded by a pathogen, or we imagined ourselves to be surrounded by a pathogen. And lots of people got it and got sick from it, and, and some died from it. When you look at that retrospectively, do you think we'll look back and say, we got it right, or we got it roughly right, or we took it too far in terms of the psychological costs for us as human beings, who are not really designed to live under consistent fear for that period of time? I am confident that we will look back and say we couldn't have done it differently because we didn't know. The part that concerns me right now is the fear that the children have had serious learning loss, they have lost their social skills, that we will not bounce back and recover from what was a tremendously interesting time that every single one of us, we have a big advantage now. We live through this and we get to talk about this till we're boring people to death about this I think we're getting there. <laughs> amazing time in history. But I'm talking about the if the planet does continue and we, there are future generations of children, they will be so interested. So this is the pandemic as a giant skinned knee that we'll resiliently bounce back from. Yeah, a skinned knee. And you get a skinned knee by doing adventurous things. And we don't do not wish this on anyone and all the extreme losses. But the other thing it did is it came in parallel with a reckoning about all kinds of issues of 
about social justice, about the economy, about how we've organized children's lives and our expectations for children. The national, everybody went through this, not equally, but we went through this. And it is a life experience that we now can use to look back at the way we were living and evaluate how much we want to reinstate and how much we want to change. So I don't know if you felt it personally in your family, some of the sparkling moments or insights you had about the pace of life, the expectations of what one does in a day, um, what brings comfort and delight and what brings unnecessary overthinking and anxiety, but it really has been an opportunity, yes, to quiver in terror, but at the same time to gain new insight and perspective on what children need and what parents are responsible for giving them and what we are not responsible for doing, but they are responsible for themselves. Wendy, in your practice, you're seeing lots of people who are all coming out of COVID right now. And I'm wondering if you have any big picture advice that might apply to lots of us as we try to figure out how to navigate the next stages. One thing that's been very helpful to parents is to see who their child is. So there's an impulse to be back to in-person school where the kids have a choice, to be back to baseball and the practices and the games, to but maybe not to parties or socializing. So we're sort of eager to have them back to all the transcript-worthy activities or what feels wholesome and healthy to parents and is, but very fearful about what can feel maybe a little bit more frivolous or even more risky, and that gets back to the moderation, celebration, and sanctification, that for each child it's going to be different, and some are just like when they go off to preschool, some are slow to warm, and others dive right in. They go into preschool, they don't even look back at mom or dad who's there. They just dash in. So every single family will have different standards, and each child will have different standards. And the piece of guidance that I give parents is don't listen too much to the barking chain or the loudmouths or the know-it-alls, and to really think about your child's pace of reentry, what feels safe to your family and appropriate, and that may be different than your extended family, and to be to have the courage and confidence to be able to say, and this is a wonderful thing to say to teenagers all the time, I know you don't see it the way I see it, but that that's how I am, or that's where I stand, or that's this is the rule or the expectation that I have. And then the relative or the child can jump up and down in distress. And you can stand on your spot. And then you can always say, I've thought about it some more. I see your point. But 
at first to listen to what they have to say about what they wish to do. And the other part is not to not to allow yourself to become too fearful or too aggressive because of the opinions of other parents who feel so strongly one way or the other. Wendy, in reading your work, I always walk away with this strong feeling of having heard something deeply sensible that also makes me feel better because I think she's right. And if I could just take a deep breath and admit that she's right, then everything would be a lot better. And I'm, I'm thrilled to, to see that actually talking to you in person has, uh, has the same effect. So thank you very much for your, your wisdom, your rationality, uh, your thoughtful judgment, your pragmatism, and for your, your insights here. I'm really grateful. Thank you. Oh, Noah, thank you. I asked Wendy to come on the podcast because at a very personal level, I was really troubled by the question of whether we need to turn the clock back to the time before the pandemic in thinking about tech and our kids. But as I spoke to her, I also realized that the theme of power that we're focusing on on Deep Background this year was very much in evidence. The power of the technology itself to draw us in. Our power as parents and the limits on that power when it comes to telling kids what they should do. Kids' power as human beings in interaction both with themselves and their worlds and with the adults around them. The truth is that getting these questions right, Wendy points out, is not just a matter of setting rules and imposing them. That is an old-fashioned, simplistic conception of what adult power over children looks like. Instead, what Wendy is advocating for in our conversation, as indeed in all of her humane and thoughtful work, is balancing through empathy and thinking through how to make the right decisions in a collaborative fashion, without pathologizing ourselves, without pathologizing our parenting, and above all, without pathologizing our kids. If we can pull that off, then we've learned Wendy's lessons, and I think all of our lives would be just a little bit better. At a minimum, we could stop worrying and start living again. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, don't worry about your phone, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Martin Gonzalez, and our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today 
If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.